Uh, thank you, Kevin and Greg, for the update. Uh, make sure to say hi to Greg and the girls this morning if you have a chance to do that. But uh, again, thank you for being here. Uh, glad to have you as part of our um, new series that we're doing called Identity Crisis. This is part three of five in this series in which we're really looking at who we are as people and I think how God made us is what we're trying to get under. In this series so far, we've asked a couple questions, and those questions have been broader questions that have been maybe more global, maybe philosophical if you want to, but we tried to drill down to what difference it actually makes to ask these questions. So the first question we asked in week one was this, why am I here? Not just here this morning, but why in the world am I here? And I tried to make the case that we are here to image God, to be the people that when when people look at us, they're like, oh, that's a part of what God looks like, and that my resulting um, behavior then is to image God by loving God and loving people around us. That just kind of makes sense. Why am I here? To image God and love God and others. That's kind of why I've been put on this earth. And then we asked the question last week, what am I worth? And that's a question, again, of what is your value and how to kind of get around what that means. And I tried to make the case last week that because we're made in God's image, that each one of us is worth the life of God that we've been bought with a price, and that price is the price of the very Son of God, who is God himself. So what are you worth? What is your value outside of your performance and what you do and how awesome you look or how strong you are or how intelligent you are outside of all that, which is an add-on, you are worth the life of God. That's what God has done for us. So this is where we've been. Now, this morning, I want to ask a question that if any of you have ever asked this question, you might be... Um, you might be a little strange, because I don't know anyone who's ever asked this question, but I think we all ask it in different ways and address it in different ways. It's this question, what am I made of? Now, if you're a little kid, you may have asked that question about mom or dad, you know, what am I made of? Maybe, but I can't recall the last time any rational thinking adult would have looked in the mirror, woken up and started their day and be like, man, I wonder, what am I made of? Like, that is going to get me going this morning. If I figure that out, that's going to help me. What in the world am I made of? It's a weird question, to be honest, to be fair. But I will, I will admit this. We asked this question, actually, about the things that we buy. Remember, about a dozen years ago, Jen and I had to buy new furniture for our living room. And uh, we found a closeout sale at a local furniture uh, store. And, and at that point, so my daughter Megan spoke up here earlier today. So just take 12 years off her life, and she was a little smaller, okay? And we have two other kids who are younger than her. So we had young kids who are in the, we're spilling everything stage, we're throwing up randomly and spitting up randomly, and other things come out from other places randomly stage, right? We'll move on quickly from that. So as we're going to buy furniture, we're aware of our life stage. And so as the salesman is talking about the furniture and the couch or whatever, they're talking about the kinds of fabric that are on that. And then there's cloth, there's, I guess, microfiber. I'm not sure if I'm getting this right. And, and then there's leather. And then so our first question is, which one will last the longest? under the constant duress of small children. To which the answer was, leather's the easiest to clean. All right, leather it is. Now, do we need to take out a small loan to buy leather? I don't know, but if we can buy something that will last the longest with what it's gonna you know, handle, let's do that because it matters to me what it's made of. You know, the other week I was sitting at one of, uh, actually Megan's soccer games um, months ago now, and it was raining. And so I pull out my umbrella, and Jen had an umbrella, I had one too, and pull out my umbrella, and after about 10 minutes, it's leaking directly through the umbrella onto my head. I'm like, this is insane. And I'm like, what is this umbrella made of? Like, all of a sudden, it matters to me what the umbrella is made of because it's not working. And, and you've probably done this too. If you're hosting a, a family or pe having people come over to your house and you ask someone, maybe your kids to set the table and you come out a few minutes later and there's paper plates on the table and plasticware 
And you're like, no, we have to impress these people. We're not going to use plates and plasticware. We're going to use real dishes. We're going to use grandma's dishes or the china or whatever it might be. Like, we're not going to use plastic and paper. Why? It's functional because it matters to you what it's made of. What it's made of, we constantly ask this question about everything that we interact with, what we buy, what we use, what we see. What is it made of? What is it made of? We rarely ask it, but we think it, and it impacts us all the time. And I would argue that what, it, what is it made of is not just for products that we use or things that we engage, but actually it matters what you're made of. And the reason it matters is because how you see how you're made and what actually constitutes you impacts how you see the value of how you use yourself every day, the way that you expend your energy. And in particular this morning, I want to talk about two dichotomies, two different views, almost a dichotomy that in church life, at least, we've kind of split down the middle and sometimes focused on one or the other. And in the church, and what I'm talking about in particular is there is a view of humanity that says, you are either physical or spiritual. You are either material or immaterial. And what I've seen often, often, not always, often emphasized in the church is the immaterial, spiritual side of life to the detriment of the physical and material side of life. In fact, I was at a funeral the other uh, month, just a month or two ago, and I was talking with someone who um, I very much respect, have great respect for. And as we were leaving the graveside, they came down and, and they offered this comment to me. It was meant to be an encouragement, and I understood it as such. But they said, you know, I was listening to radio the other day, and I heard that, you know, we're really just, we're really spiritual people with physical bodies. But really what we just experienced is this reality that we're spiritual people going back to see our spiritual father. I get that. I understand the desire is to bring comfort and pain. It's just not correct. We're not just spiritual people. We're not just immaterial. There's something very physical to who we are. And I think it's very important as we think about what am I made of, I'm not talking about flesh and bones and blood and all that. I mean, obviously that's a part of it, but I'm talking deeper than that. Are we material, immaterial? Who is the real you? And to try to explain this a little bit more, I want to take you back to 1889. There was a guy, you know him now, but during his lifetime, you wouldn't have known him very much. His name was Vincent, Vincent Van Gogh. Vincent Van Gogh in 1889 looked out his window in the mental asylum that he was in, okay, and he saw a starry night. So he drew a starry night. And this is what this, this painting is called. During Vincent Van Gogh's lifetime, they thought, now, He's an average painter at best, and obviously this painting, if you've seen it before, and most of you have, has become world-renowned. And as I look at this painting and consider this in light of what I want to talk about, what I see in this is inside of Van Gogh in that night was inspiration. There was a, a movement, a passion of his heart to, to, to draw something, to put it out on canvas. The, there was something when he looked out and saw the stars and the, the moon and the, the landscape, there was something that moved him, something immaterial in him that moved him to draw, to paint. But then he painted. And so I would ask you, if you could separate in Van Gogh the inspiration from the actual canvas, which would be worth more? And the answer, well, that's impossible. You can't have the inspiration without the canvas. In fact, you can't have the painting without the inspiration. And so what does it mean? And I would argue this, if you talk about inspiration and expression, that inspiration without expression is like an artist without a canvas. You can't have, we talk about works of art, you can't have works of art that are inspired by something but not have them expressed in any way. So when Van Gogh is moved by the starry night, imagine if he just sat there. Wow! What a night. But he didn't just sit there. 
He drew there. He painted there. He created in physical form the painting that you now see and that I now see that moves you and moves me. What do you see? You see the physical canvas. So do I. What's behind that? The inspiration of it. Now, which is worth more? And we'd have to say, you can't have one without the other. So inspiration without expression is like an artist without a canvas. The reason I want to go into this with us, because sometimes I think just by default, we tend to, if you have grown up in the church or are used to things in the Christian world, we can tend to emphasize the spiritual side of our lives, and I understand why, to the detriment of the physical material side of our lives and how we're actually made. I remember doing this as a college student. I worked as a, on a painting crew, and that was really awesome. I was terrible at it. I applied for the job. I remember the application process. It was not great, but on the application was a bunch of questions, and I was, you know, it was a two-page thing, and you know, questions like, how long would it take you to paint you know, this, that, and the other thing, to which I'm like, I finally just, I stopped in the middle, I said to the guy, I have no idea about any of this. Do you want me to work for you or not? I don't know anything, so you tell me. And so he's like, okay, fine, just, just come on. So I sanded all summer. Give the guy sandpaper, and that won't be too bad, right? And that's what I did. So I remember we worked for a, worked for a crew in the city. Uh, we went different places. And in the city, I had to sand the spindles, which is a great mo moment in my life, of a large wraparound porch. It made me wonder why anyone in the world would ever make a large wraparound porch. And every spindle is, you know, intricately made. It's not just straight up and down. There's all kinds of grooves and notches, and each spindle goes all the way around the spindle, right? <laughs> Oh, I, I, clearly, I emotionally need to process this. So I'm sanding all that, and, and part of it is I'm disillusioned, I'm tired, and I'm working two jobs to pay for school. But, but uh, in the middle of that, I remember vividly thinking, this is why, this is why I'm going to Lancaster Bible College. This is why I want to go into ministry, because sanding spindles doesn't matter. I remember having that, that, that thought. This doesn't matter. I want to do the stuff that really matters. I want to do the stuff that will matter for eternity. I want to go into ministry because the spiritual matters and the physical doesn't. I didn't say that, but that's exactly what I thought. And I had people around me who would have affirmed, yep, that's true. In fact, Paul, when he was writing to the early church in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, he made a comment. He said, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Oh, that just affirms that godliness is compared to physical training. It's nothing. Godliness is everything. Let's just focus on the spiritual, focus on the immaterial, to the detriment of and to the lack of critical thinking of what the physical, material expression of ourself really means. It's very important to get our mind around how, why does it matter that you, you and me, are both material and immaterial, both physical, if you will, and spiritual, that both need to be understood in our minds in order that we can live out fully who God has made us to be. So I want to invite you to turn to, the, to a, a, a book in the Bible, um, the Gospel of John, so where I just want to drop us quick. We're going to jump in there, and then I'm going to just move you to a couple different passages. But if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you if you don't own one, by the way. But John is the, um, the fourth, what we call, gospel or book in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. Uh, there, and you can find John. We're going to jump right into John chapter 1. And in here we get a picture of what um, happened when Jesus came to the earth, what, you know, what, uh, what took place, how John, who was a follower of Jesus, by the way, um, wrote 
about who Jesus was. And so in John chapter 1, I'm reading from the New International Version. I'm just going to look at one verse and talk that through with you a little bit and then go to a couple other ones. But um, here's what he writes in John chapter 1 and verse 14. He says this, The Word, capital W, your Bible, I'm sure. And the Word, by the way, he's referring to Jesus. I'm just going to tell you that. You can look that up later. But by the Word, he means the eternal Word of God. He means Jesus. He's speaking about Jesus. Jesus, or the Word, became flesh. Meaning that there was a time when Jesus didn't have flesh. And that's true. There was a time that Jesus, the beginning of creation, actually helped create the world. So Jesus didn't come into existence in the manger. Jesus always existed, but he took on flesh in the manger for the very first time. So Jesus always existed, is what we believe. Jesus always existed. He was around at creation. Everything was made through him. Colossians tells us that. But Jesus has always been, but the Word, there was a moment in time when the Word became all of a sudden flesh. And then this verb is translated into three words in the NIV at least, and made his dwelling, or maybe dwelt in your translation, dwelt, made his dwelling among us. And then he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So in that verse, we see there was a time when the word became flesh and then made his dwelling. That idea of made his dwelling is a a verb that takes the early reader back to the Old Testament during the time of the uh, tabernacle, and the tabernacle was the place where God's presence would reside in the middle of his people. And the tabernacle would move, and with the tabernacle moving, God would move, so to speak. The presence of God could move. As long as the tabernacle was there, then there was a sense of we are in right covenant relationship with God because there's a tabernacle. We can worship. God is with us. He is here. I see the tabernacle. All is right in the world. That verb to tabernacle or tabernacled is the same verb used here that John is pulling that old image of saying, remember that idea of that God was present in that space. God is now tabernacled. He's now moved himself. Here is what it looks like now. It looks like the person of Jesus. He's put himself down here and he's taken on flesh and dropped himself right in the middle of you that you could look to him to see the Father, that he has put on flesh and tabernacled, if you will. And then what do we see when we see his flesh, when we see his incarnation, when we see the material side? We have seen his glory. Now we're talking about visual reality. We, we have now seen with our eyes the glory of God. It's intriguing that we move beyond seeing the glory of God from a sunset. This is not seeing the glory of God in general revelation or in creation. John, John isn't just saying, hey, we see God when we see the sunset. We see God when we go to the beach. We see God when we go to the mountains. So those are all kind of true. If you look at the world and how awesome it is, that's it's true. That God has made these things and we're impressed by that. But now he changes this reality and says, when you see the human being of Jesus, God in flesh, when you see that human reality, you now also see the glory that you used to attribute to the heavens. You now see that glory that is now in the person, in the body, in the incarnation, we call it, of Jesus. And this is the opening for me. This is striking for me. As I sit there as a college student thinking, these spindles are so dumb, I can't believe I have to sand them. The incarnation of Christ says, be careful, be careful how you talk about those spindles. (laughs) Be careful how you see the physical things you do with your hand. Tim, you might, you might just 
be lazy. Right? Like you might just not want to have your fingers worn down by the sandpaper for five straight hours before you do it again for five more hours. And you might be making a spiritual excuse for something that actually you don't understand. That the material world that you live in, through that, God has shown his glory through Jesus. The glory of the one and only came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the truth is, God could easily have impressed the glory of Jesus and his glory on our souls, on our immaterial side. If all that really mattered was the spiritual and immaterial, God could have spoken from heaven and impressed on our passions and our hearts his glory, right? He could have, easily. Because you can do this too. You can do this now. You can close your eyes and you can imagine a moment when God was close to you. You can remember a time when you've been moved. You can remember a time when you struggled or had pain or whatever it might be. And you can be reminded of things that draw emotion back out of you. God could have impressed on our souls his glory, but he didn't. He chose to incarnate, put into human flesh his glory in the person of Jesus. And then, later on in the New Testament, now I'm going to jump from John, so um, so you can go here if you want to. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Later on, Paul writes this. Um, He talks about our our bodies in this way. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple? Pause it for a minute in your mind as you read that. Don't you know your body is a temple? That's a pretty profound statement, that your body is a temple. Again, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the temple was the major expression of the worship of God. There's nothing greater than the temple. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple? That's a, that's a mind-bender for the Jews. Your body is the temple? I don't, I'm not sure about that. Don't you know that your body... This is after Jesus ascended or left the earth, and Jesus left the Holy Spirit for us. And he said, the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you, going to come into your body. And your body will be the temple. That will now be the new place that God will tabernacle. God will tabernacle in that space. So your body is a temple now of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own, you're bought at a price, therefore... Honor God with your body. The result is with your physical being, with what you do materially. Honor God with your body because it matters materially how we're made, not just spiritually how we're made. And so our bodies are not an accommodation. The Holy Spirit chose to embody or to come into our bodies, and in that sense, it's important to understand who you are in both material and immaterial. It is not as if God was sitting there saying, I don't know what to do with the physical stuff that I made. Maybe I'll throw the Holy Spirit in there. Maybe clean it up a little bit. Just hope they can hold their breath until we all meet Jesus in the real, in spiritual, you know, netherworld. Or I mean, no. God created this physical space. And in that, he reminds us by his incarnation and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I said, this is not an accommodation. The physical material reality of what you work with and how you work and how you engage is a part of how God has made us. Okay, now, to keep going. Finally, I'll say this and then I'm going to move on. To me, understanding the incarnation, that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and finally, that Jesus was resurrected, reminds me that if the resurrection didn't happen, if the resurrection wasn't true, if it didn't matter that our material bodies were that important, there would have been no need for a resurrection in that sense. That the resurrection reminds us not only is the power of death broken, but also that the, the resurrection back to a physical body is indeed what we are made for, for a complete experience, material and immaterial. And so as we, we come to this, I have two questions for us. I have two questions. If indeed, 
If indeed the incarnation of Jesus and the temple of the Holy Spirit in our body and the resurrection are true. Two questions. Number one is this. How am I doing taking care of all of me? How am I doing taking care of all of me? This is the first question I want you to consider. How am I doing taking care of all of me? In other words, there are sometimes, speaking physically for a minute, there are sometimes when you may be stressed, you may be fatigued, you may feel like God is far from you. There may be times that prayer is needed in that case. There may be times when Bible study is needed in that case. There legitimately may be. There may be times when a, a call to a friend or a text is needed, a journal thing is needed, solitude is needed, fasting might be needed. I mean, there are times for that. But there's also times when you just need to go to sleep. Right? There's also times when you just need to eat something. That the way that we feel physically impacts the way that we feel spiritually. I don't know of anyone who can not sleep well for four consecutive days and then wake up feeling the closest to God that they've ever felt in their life. In fact, have you ever been a youth leader on a youth retreat? <clears throat> Point made, right? In Monday morning, you're not feeling like God's awesome. You're feeling like, why did I do that, right? Like, I'm so dog-tired. What is going on in my world? And you feel so far from God, even though the kids had a great time. You're like, oh, I don't even think there's a God in heaven. I'm so tired. And then you, you, know, you recover from that, and you get on, and you realize why. It's not because you've all of a sudden fallen from grace. It's just because you're just, just tired. Like, how we feel physically. So, to my point then, it is important. It is important how you eat. It is important how you sleep. And it is important how you exercise. Right? All of a sudden, I kind of sound like Dr. Phil or Oprah all of a sudden, Right? That's not what I want to be. I don't want to turn us into some humanistic culture or some um, you know, uh, environment where we all got to have the best Instagram post or whatever. But I'm just saying, if indeed it's true that God has put together our bodies and our being in this way, what are you made of? Who is the real you? The real you isn't just that internal piece of you, that passion, that heart. That is a big part of you. No question. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the real you is also the you that you actually physically see in the mirror. The real you is the person you're going to feed for lunch. The real you is the person who's going to sit on the couch or exercise or do whatever. That is the real you. And you know this as well as I do. That if you're not taking care of the body part of you, when opportunities even come up for ministry, I mean, talk about the trip to the DR for a minute, talk about a trip anywhere. Like, if you're feeling physically fatigued where you're like, I don't think I could actually walk that far. I don't think I could do that because I'm just out of shape. You know immediately, you have to ask the question, am I able to do the kind of ministry that is in front of me? Am I taking care of my body well enough to be faithful to the God who has made me? Now, let me be careful. Let me be careful. You hear me right. I'm not talking about uh, medical conditions or anything like that. I'm just talking about what's in natural and normal control for you, that you are a physical being as well as an immaterial being, okay? Now, let me move on to the other side, and that is like immaterially. How are you, how are you doing taking care of all of me? Not just physically, but also over here. There is a growing field of things called emotional intelligence. You may be reading about some of this. If you're a leader in your business or your company, you've probably read about that. If you haven't, you should. Um, but the, uh, the concept of emotional intelligence and emotional IQ is a big deal out there right now. And there's value to thinking about this question. Here's a question I'd have for you, and that is, what do your feelings tell you about who you are? What do the feelings that you have tell you about who you are? I was talking to a couple people this morning, and people asked me, how, how are you doing? And, uh, you know, I tell people right now, I said, well, honestly, in general right now, I feel like I'm um, grieving right now. Like, I'm going through a number of emotions on an almost hourly basis, it feels like, sometimes. Sometimes high, sometimes low, uh, sometimes numb, sometimes angry, sometimes whatever. Like, I'm going through a variety of things for a variety of reasons. 
And in that space, I have to ask the question, what do those emotions teach me about who I am? What are they trying to tell me in this space? The worst thing that I can do and the worst thing that you can do is just kind of push them back and hope that they go away on their own, which, by the way, if you grow up in a passive-aggressive Lancaster County culture, that can be our default because we don't know how to adjust and handle and talk about those emotions. So, for example, if you have young kids and you have... um, people over for a dinner party with not plasticware, right, and, and real, real plates and all that. And at, at the end of the meal, there's dessert time, there's a cookie tray there, and your kid gets one, and then, you know, five minutes later or one minute later, they say, hey, can I have an, hey, mom, can I have another one, as they're taking it and walking away with it, right? To which you're like, no, put it back, to which you're like, ha, 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 and they eat it and run. Then you have an opportunity. And, and by default, like, I can get angry with that. I'd be like, no, hey, Junior, come back. Like, do that. And then I have to ask the question, what am I most angry about? Am I angry that you just shamed me in front of my friends or that you have made an unhealthy choice for you? Am I angry that by you doing this and shaming me in front of my friends, I actually am remembering the shame that I felt growing up and the things that I haven't dealt with relative to my family? All of a sudden, asking the questions, why do I feel what I feel in this space is a very important thing to ask. Why do you work as hard at work as you do? Why is the perfection, perfectionistic tendencies there for you? Why is it that sometimes you feel like, is there anyone else working in this company besides me? Why doesn't anyone else see the things that I see? Where does that come from? Why is that there? Why is that critical or judgmental spirit there? Where does that come from? What are those feelings telling you about who you are? Because you are both physical and spiritual. You're both material and immaterial. How are you taking care of all of you is what my question is ultimately for you. The material and the immaterial side because this is how God has made us as complete creatures. And then I finally want to add this. I'm moving on quickly here. I could talk about this for a lot longer. I'm not going to. What am I painting? Okay, what am I painting? Here's what I mean by that. Go back to Van Gogh's image in your mind for a minute. God, God was inspired to create you. You are the canvas which he has created on. As a, as a human being, you have become, we have become the starry night. We have become the, the beauty of God's creation. And in doing that, in creating you, in creating me, he has then also kind of commissioned us to say, image me, love me people around you with what I've given to you. Take the work of your hands, the things that you do, the trucks that you drive, the farms that you manage, the shipments that you deliver, the people that you manage, the homes that you sell, the cars and the people that you insure, the, peop- the lessons that you teach, the, the things that you oversee, the, the homes that you build. Take those things that you do. That is your canvas. That is your canvas. As you are inspired... <laughs> by the things that move God's heart in your space, whatever that space is. How are you painting in that space? Don't make the mistake I made as a college kid. Oh, who wants to sand spindles because they're going to deteriorate? What will ultimately last is eternity. It's true, it will ultimately last. But what I also didn't realize is that people are going to have conversations on that porch. The spindles that I'm sanding are going to be beautified. There's going to be a space now for people to come and gather and talk and have conversation, and who knows what will go on in that space. I had a very limited view, the truth, both the physical and the immaterial. And so for you in your space, what are you painting? What inspires you? What is moved in your heart about who God is and how he works in your employees, in your field, in your work, in your future? Because you have the chance to paint. You have the chance to show. Have you been moved by the mercy of God? Have you been moved by the forgiveness of God? Have you been changed by the cross of Christ? What does it look like? 
for your employees to see that, for your customers to see that, for your student friends to see that, for your family to see that, for your young kids to see that at home. That's your canvas. You get to paint. An inspiration without expression is like an artist without a canvas. You have a canvas, and I have a canvas right in front of me. And you don't ever need to be a full-time pastor like I am or a full-time missionary because your canvas are the kids that you care for. Your canvas is the work that you do. Your canvas is the, the way that you're going to spend that time in your work week with the people that you interact with, with a chance to show them this is what God is like. This is what God is like. He loves you, and he loves me, no matter what. Now, along that journey of painting, you know this and I know this, there's always challenges that come along the way. There's always hiccups. It's always harder than it seems. Part of the reason for that is because we go everywhere we are. We have struggles, and we have challenges, and we are very imperfect. And that is what I want to talk about next week. And we tackle a difficult but necessary subject about the sin, the pain, the mistakes, the struggles that we bring to the table. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Be glad to have you back for Identity Crisis Part 4. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together this morning to engage in a moment here of thinking about how we're made and the importance of both prioritizing both the material world in which we live and the work of our hands, the care of our bodies, and the immaterial, the spiritual side of how we're doing on the inside, how our hearts are, how our passions are. I pray that you would give us the courage to do what we need to do with what we've heard this morning. don't know how this lands with everybody here this morning or those listening online later, but there may be some here who need to go to counseling who just have been afraid to, uh, thinking it's admitting weakness or whatever and been unwilling to do that. I pray that you give them the courage to step into that. I pray that you give people courage here this morning to remember again and to be reminded again that the work they spend with their kids when no one else is going to notice how many diapers they're changing or how many um, you know, uh, spit-ups they're cleaning up and how much time they're spending awake at night, I pray that you would encourage those moms and dads both who are working hard in that space to remember this is the canvas that they're painting on. Their kids are going to see the patience and grace that they have or don't have and the apologies that need to be offered and just the work of that. I pray that you'd bless the work of their hands. I pray that you would give us as employees and employers reminders this week that we just don't show up to work in order for another greater good, but that the work is the good that we do. I pray that you would help us to see that as our canvas this week, to see the people that we interact with, the customers, the vendors, the suppliers that we interact with as the canvas that we get to paint, get to image the love of God in the very physical world in which we live, from both physical and immaterial as well. So God, I pray that you would, you would give us that reminder of who we are in your image and that we would believe you, that you are a God who's come to die for us because you value us so much. So give us the courage to do what we know we need to do this week. We pray this in Jesus' name.